Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. And I have a confession to make. I used to be a geek. Maybe you were too. Did you play Magic the Gathering? Paint Warhammer miniatures? Was your father-daughter bonding activity when your dad traveled for work to play the computer game StarCraft? Check, check, and check. I did all these things, and I was pretty much the only kid I knew who did. But now, everyone I know is obsessed with fantasy and sci-fi. We're all watching Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, Dark, X-Men, Batman, Wonder Woman, Lord of the Rings, and like the millionth Marvel movie, whatever it's called. You used to be bullied for this stuff, and now the jocks in high school are just as likely to be esports champions as actual, you know, sports champions. When did dragons become cool? And why couldn't they have been cool when I was 10? And how have the changing demographics of geekdom affected the mainstream and geekdom itself, for better or for worse? Here to answer these questions is someone with way more geek cred than me, lifelong nerd and critic A.D. Jameson. In his new book, I Find Your Lack of Faith Disturbing, he charts the triumph of geek culture, starting with our friends on Tatooine. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So in your book, you locate the beginning of the geek revolution, where geek first enters the mainstream as Star Wars. So why is Star Wars the first landmark? Yeah, it might be a little better to think of it as a, as a successive series of revolutions. I mean, when you start looking for the origins of geek culture, or like even kind of like the geek mindset, you, you, know, you can kind of keep going back endlessly through time and finding earlier and earlier examples of things. But when Star Wars comes out, there's a growing geek culture that's a kind of underground. They have been unified a bit by Star Trek. And then when they see Star Wars in 1977, they, they think, oh, wow, this is it. So when I talk about geek culture, I'm talking about a certain kind of uh, – a certain demographic or a certain kind of mindset. And, and what those people want, what geeks want more than anything else is they want realist fantasy. And they often want very serious fantasy. And part of what they liked about Star Wars – was how Star Wars brought a level of realism to science fiction that they, they really hadn't seen in a motion picture before that. Uh, there's precedents for it, like 2001 A Space Odyssey and movies like Silent Running. But Star Wars just 
just really cemented this idea. It was like you could point to it and say, that's, that's what I want the science fiction to look like. Why doesn't other science fiction look like that? And so even though there was a, a flood of science fiction and fantasy after that in the 19, late 70s and 1980s, and I grew up with a lot of it and liked it, if you go back and look at a lot of it now, it's still very much aimed towards children. A lot of it doesn't quite have the same realist qualities that, that Star Wars did. And, um, and that's what the geeks wanted. They wanted more realist science fiction in that vein. But then Star Wars mania kind of faded. And even though it was such a phenomenon, the geeks didn't really win that one. I mean, you write that by the time you were totally enthralled by Star Wars, like nobody else was really geeking out <laughs> over it in the same way you were. Well, no, nobody that I knew. <laughs> I mean, other people certainly were. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I didn't really know many people at that time who were quite as into it as I was. There was maybe like one other kid in my class. Uh, but we we were not the popular kids, to put it mildly. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting to go back and look at the 1980s. As we think of Star Wars now, especially as you know this pop culture phenomenon that's always been with us. But it's it's interesting to remember that back in the 80s, by like 86, 87, it had kind of died down. And in 1986, all the licenses for Star Wars came to an end. And 1987, there's no new Star Wars products on the market. And what what I think is interesting about that is it shows you that George Lucas, even he hadn't realized the the phenomenon he had on his hands. And he was he wanted to go on and make other things partly for personal reasons, but also partly because even though geeks existed at that time, it was a, it was kind of a small and underground demographic. And people like George Lucas, people in Hollywood, they hadn't really figured out yet how to monetize that demographic and how to they, they I don't even think they had realized there was a demographic like that or if they did realize it they thought it was very very underground so um it really isn't until the 90s that 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 demographic becomes a lot more visible and comes to the fore and people really start making products uh that are that are tailor made for it custom made for it on a on a much larger scale and that's why it really isn't until the 90s, I think, that, that geek kind of goes above ground and becomes a very mainstream phenomenon the way we see it today. I mean, what about geekdom makes it so amenable to this franchise model of geekdom? What makes our current golden age possible when like Star Wars sort of flopped in that regard in the in the 80s? Yeah. So part of it is geek culture. Ideally, it wants this kind of fully immersive limitless experience with the fantastical other world. So they, they don't just want to like see, read a book about Middle Earth. They kind of want to feel like they're going to Middle Earth. You know, one of the things that's happened increasingly in, in Hollywood, not, not just in Hollywood, but just in all these entertainment companies, and they're all, you know, they all kind of own each other these days. They're these massive multimedia companies. And what they want more than anything increasingly is to have a, a perennial product that they can express through a wide variety of media. Not just movies and TV shows and comics and video games, but even things like, you know, bed sheets and T-shirts on sale at Target and branding they can apply on, a you know, any product that's conceivable. So if you think about the current era of, of – I'll use Hollywood as shorthand, but really I'm talking about all these, these companies – the idea is that once you're a fan of it, once you're a fan of X-Men, say, or Star Wars, you'll be a lifelong fan of it. You know, you'll, you'll want to buy products that are branded uh, with, with, with that franchise, with that brand. Plus, of course, you can keep making the products endlessly. You know, you can keep making Marvel movies. You can keep making Star Wars movies. Uh, they don't ever have to end. And that, that's a relatively recent shift in Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's something that has happened over the past, you know, 30, 40 years or so. It's increasingly happening. 
It's replacing different models, perhaps, of how Hollywood worked. Hollywood's always trying to minimize the risk of their investments. So uh, initially, they probably did it more through genre. Uh, then you have a period in like the 60s and 70s and 80s where stars kind of take over. And it's like, oh, I like Tom Cruise or I like Meryl Streep. I'll go see their movies. Um, but but these days, what Hollywood has found, and again, part of it is due to the way that it's organized right now. And they're turning to franchises themselves as a way to minimize that risk. And, you know, if you're a fan of Wolverine, you'll be a fan of Wolverine your entire life. And then you want to buy tons and tons of products that have Wolverine on them. So speaking of changes in Hollywood over the past 30 or 40 years, one of the things that you point out is that there is this perceived tension between fantasy and reality in films and especially between movies in the tradition of the new Hollywood of the 1970s, like Taxi Driver, and the films that uh, ruined that aesthetic, like Star Wars or Jaws. But actually, as you pointed out earlier, Star Wars's realism was actually what made it so successful. And a lot of fans are, in fact, really looking for what you call this documentary feel. What do you mean by that? What does a, a documentary feel mean in the context of an entirely made-up imaginary universe? Yeah, this is this gets right to the heart of something I think that's often misunderstood and that the, is part of why I wrote the book is people often think of fantasy and realism as, as opposites of each other. And... And they're not really because realism is more kind of a mode or a way of making art and fantasy is more of a genre uh, in that it's a, it's a type of subject matter. And you can apply realist techniques to fantastical subjects. Uh, you don't need to apply realism just to things that really exist in the, in the real world. So you, know, you can have realist movies about cops and, and cities, but you can have realist movies about you – know, and, and realist artworks about fantasy, about dragons and elves and things like that. So when you look at the new Hollywood, like you look at movies from the 70s that were so popular at the time, Taxi Driver, Five Easy Pieces, or The Godfather, or Annie Hall, a part of what people like about those movies is the sense that they're not taking place in Hollywood. They're, they're not taking place in, like on a, on a soundstage uh, or a back lot you know, in Hollywood, but they're actually taking place in New York City, in Chicago. It's like they, they actually look like real people real, living real lives in those places. And geeks want the same quality from, you know, the, the movies they like. Obviously, you can't go shoot on Tatooine, you know, in Star Wars, or you can't go shoot in Gotham City. Uh, those, are, those are places that don't exist. So the challenge becomes to try and make places like Gotham City or places like Tatooine look as real and as convincing as New York City and as Chicago. These places should look like they really exist, that the camera was kind of plunked down there. You could go in any direction. As much as you see in the movie, there's still more waiting beyond the edges of the camera. Um, that these, all these aliens, all these creatures are there going about their lives, and we just happen to be there. Right. And the aliens have their own language, which makes grammatical sense, and you could learn to speak it if you wanted to, stuff like that. Um, but more than that, it's that these fantastical heroes and even superheroes are actually governed by the the physical and emotional laws of our universe, in a way, they can be hurt and damaged, not just physically, but psychologically. Like in one of my personal favorites, the TV series Jessica Jones, who is more of an alienating antihero than, say, a go-getter like Wonder Woman. Exactly, exactly. And this growing interest in heroes that are, you know, more with feet of clay, who are a little bit more flawed and have a lot of human characteristics. Often they suffer from trauma. Um, they suffer a lot of setbacks. If you look at 
uh, Christian Bale and Christopher Nolan's Batman, his Dark Knight movies, by the time you get to the third one, the number of injuries he sustained and how he needs, you know, braces to walk and walks with a cane and he has all the scars on his back. And again, it's an attempt to make a more realist portrayal of these characters where, of course, they would suffer from trauma. Of course, they would suffer setbacks and defeats. Of course, they would have personal problems and have to deal with real life and not just, you know, Playboys living in mansions, <laughs> flying around in jets and such. Although there's 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 a bit of that as well. Yeah, Nolan's Batman is a good example. I mean, it's a really big departure, as you point out in the book, from Tim Burton's version of Batman, which is a little different. Um, is there a conflict between the different members of a fandom according to when they joined, like which Batman they were first introduced to? I'm thinking of the conflict between fans who've been around the block forever, say, and know all the characters in Star Wars by name and planet, and those that only joined in recently, and what they love about Star Wars is that Finn is this super complicated stormtrooper who turns his back on the dark side, to say nothing of the like more political changes in the new films. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's two conflicts you can think about. There's conflicts between the geeks themselves, between them and, say, the, the wider public. Because even though a lot of these, you know, geekier things are popular, it doesn't mean that they're all geeky per se. You look at the Transformers movies, and a lot of geeks don't like it because it doesn't really resemble on any level the artwork that they know from the 80s or maybe from the comics in the 90s, the cartoons then. And and so part of it is because they've made Transformers into not so much a geeky franchise, but really like a mass audience, a general audience. And the more people that you try to bring into it, the, the bigger a commodity you try to make it. Um, the harder a time you're going to have keeping it geeky because, you know, geekdom brings with it a lot of homework, which I think you were implying in the question. You know, you have to know tons of names, tons of history, all these other artworks and things like that. Most most people in general audiences don't want to do that kind of work. I think, you know, Marvel's kind of running into that problem right now with this new Avengers movie. It's the 19th one. Do I feel like I have to have seen the previous 18? Do I have to know who everybody in it is? Problems like that. So there's a tension between geeks and, and just wider audiences. And then, yeah, there's also a tension between, you know, geeks and, and newer generations. Doctor Who is another example of it. You have a lot of Doctor Who fans now who are fans of just the current Doctors since, like, the reboot in, in the mid-2000s. And there's a lot of people today who have never seen any of the older work. Again, it, it's another version of that homework problem. Do you have to know all the previous stuff to enjoy the current things? And, yeah, I think people get very possessive of the moment that they enter, you know, geekdom. I know in my case, I started reading X-Men comics in the 1980s, and for a while I was very possessive of those particular characters and the team. And when I saw the movies that were being made in the early 2000s, there's there's a way I resented them because even though on one hand I was very happy to see a big-budget X-Men movie, I was also thinking, wow, they don't really look the way I remember them looking. They're wearing, they look more like The Matrix. I don't really like that. And that's always going to be a tension. The, the thing that I think that, that geeks have to remember, and I say this as a geek, is that if works of popular culture and, and comics and movies and stuff and TV shows don't keep getting updated, uh, they really run the risk of just becoming obsolete and falling out of fashion. And then, you know, like you said, the fans get older and they die and it fades into uh, obscurity. Right. Right. And one of the other tensions at play between, you know, geeks who have real ownership of stuff that they've known all along and these newer fans is that a lot of, you know, non-white, non-male, non-straight fans are more visible and there are more vocal consumers who maybe have a bit to say about how white a lot of 
the fandom is, about how a lot of the artwork is. You know, you can see that with Gamergate being the most obvious, ugly example. But you also have had brouhaha about H.P. Lovecraft and the Hugo Awards or Game of Thrones sexualization of women, the backlash against Wonder Woman, against Rey in The Force Awakens. I mean, how do you think that reactionary backlash from old school geeks and from, you know, young white men who are geeks um, really jives with the other half of geek history, which was such a welcome spot for misfits and queers and underdogs. I mean, I did a whole episode uh, in the early days of the podcast about how superheroes are just really gay and are like home yeah, for yeah. these I queers. Yeah, I saw that one actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's um, It's a really interesting question. So th- there's no doubt that that's one of the tensions that's really coming to the fore. You have a lot of these communities which are not, they don't even have to be underground. They can even be mainstream that, you know, a lot of them, especially like straight young white men, felt like it was their exclusive property. And now as they're being opened up and becoming more commercial and and uh, more mainstream and attracting a wider audience, um, there there has been a very, you know, a lot of ugly conflicts uh, related to this. But it's sometimes the history is a little more complicated than than we sometimes remember. So, for example, I used to play the game Magic the Gathering. And... That came out in 1993, and I started playing it in 1994. And my, my memories of that time was that Magic was actually a fairly inclusive game. I was taught how to play it by a woman I was dating at the time, and there were just as many women in my play group as there were men. Uh, we were all kind of misfits and, and you know, uh, geeks, and we would play it at the geek dorm at, at Penn State instead of going to football games or going out to parties and things like that. And uh, and I knew, you know, a lot of people who were queer, a lot of people who felt marginalized by society. And, and we all kind of shared that game together and played it through the 90s. And then around the late 90s, the, the company that makes the game, they decided to change really who their target demographics were. Um, and they started marketing the game much less as this kind of whimsical, fantastical game and more as this kind of hardcore tournament-based game. And you see that development through the late 90s into the 2000s. And by the time you get into the 2000s, the game is largely exclusively, you know, young white guys playing it, and it's largely a a tournament game. And they themselves will admit that they alienated a lot of their more casual fans. They didn't even know they had those more casual fans. And and if you go back and look at any of their kind of marketing materials or the articles of people who make the game right, or even the way they they make the cards and such, there's a newfound commitment to diversity in that company since, since 2014. I think, you know, Gamergate kind of scares them. But that wasn't there. There's no commitment to diversity from that company in the game at all from like 1999 to 2014. It just completely disappears during that time period. Sometimes I'm a little suspicious that it isn't maybe a genuine commitment on their part. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But now that geekier products are more mainstream, you're going to have to appeal to a wider variety of people. And so I think think you see a lot of these geekier properties that were in the past, or at least temporarily were, more the province of straight white men, it's being kind of pried away from them at this point. And I mean, personally, I think that's a good thing. On one hand, it's being driven by fans. On the other hand, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's like, you know, the people who are making these and the corporations have the power to plaster the airwaves with with advertising and such. Like, they're, they're really the ones who have the power here. And um, a lot of that's driven by who they think are the target demographics, who the best, you know, consumers are. It seems like they want as many people these days as possible. So in that regard, I expect... Um, geek culture, at least the commercial side of it, to increasingly reflect mainstream politics, uh, you know, whatever shape or form they take. And I mean, these days in this country, it's you're not always sure which direction mainstream <laughs> politics are going to take. So it could be a very different story four years from now. <laughs> we'll have to check back and see. 
but I don't think I don't think geek culture is going anywhere. I also don't think that, um, especially as a mainstream big business, it's going anywhere. At the same time, though, there still are a lot of fans of fantasy. Something I think about increasingly, there are a lot of fans of fantasy who I think still feel marginalized by current geek culture that they still feel underground and forgotten about because. I try to put forward in the book this argument that the current incarnation of, of geek culture would, at its core is this interest in realist fantasy. And there are a lot of people who like fantasy who don't particularly care if it's realist or not. And I think it's, you know right now is a great time if you're like an Avengers fan and want to watch 19 movies. But if you're interested in something a little more whimsical or less realist or more mystical, maybe you feel a little left out in the cold by that. For more on the triumph of geek culture, do check out A.D. Jameson's book, I Find Your Lack of Faith Disturbing. We've also got links to some of his other writing about gender in Magic the Gathering and some other stuff. Next week, we are back with an episode about a land whose musical traditions seem to have been frozen in time. And we'll be playing you recordings from some pretty rare 78 RPM records. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.